Have you ever wondered if Rome ever had an empire with more of a common touch? Or when Rome started to interact with their eastern neighbours? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast. Weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting TGNReview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, this is a serious marker for you and I. This is our 10th episode, the end of our pilot season, and we have some seriously good news for our listeners who have been asking for this for the longest time. We do indeed, Paul. Would you mind sharing that with everyone? It is absolutely my pleasure to do so. Like we discussed in prior episodes, because we've been asked quite a lot, our first season was a pilot season. We wanted to know if this would take and if it had a future. And we thought this is the best way we could go about it. But after the clear response from you guys, and after much discussion and planning between Patrick and myself, we are now starting this fall with the beginning of season two. We will be recording and releasing two episodes a month, or once every two weeks. And this is incredible. This is exciting. And it's more than we could have possibly hoped for. And it's a huge step forward in an incredible journey that we're all taking together. It's not just Patrick and myself. It's you guys as well. And we're starting to go all in. We're starting to pick up the pace. And that's a really big deal. And there's nothing that could be more exciting from our perspective. Super, super exciting. I'm really looking forward to picking up speed with this. Like you said, these first 10 episodes have been something of a pilot. We've been learning as we go. I'm sure episode one sounds nothing like episode 10 by now and it's going to constantly evolve as we watch the world constantly evolve and change and i'm just excited to still be on this journey yeah you know just like i was saying this has really been an incredible journey and really the best part and this is not cliche at all it's absolutely the truth the best and most exciting part is not just the fact that we have people listening but we have such a thoughtful and engaging and interesting audience who really just kicks us up a gear sometimes whether it be podcast creators or youtube they often like to say that it's you guys that make it all worthwhile and at times given how often it's said it can kind of sound like a constant refrain but it's not it's absolutely the truth and so for us when you have an audience that is as awesome as you guys that is really the the grand slam the, the one thing that you can never account for the one thing that you can only hope to build and that's exactly where we are and like i said we are so pumped and the fact that we get to do it with you guys really just takes us into a league all of its own but before we get into it with all this good news out of the way let's fire up our necessary and obligatory now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 
3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. So, Paul, you were talking to us about something we haven't really heard much about in the Roman Empire this far, and that's a good emperor, which we don't hear much about those. They're normally pretty bad people, but you're telling us about one of the good emperors. In short, yes, we definitely seem to have a preponderance so far in the first century after Augustus of generally deeply problematic princeps, and, and the principate being a wildly varying convention in terms of succession, the exact powers that it possesses. It's it's an institution that throughout the first century that we've covered basically undergoes a tremendous evolution, starting with the reign of Augustus, which up to this point has largely been the gold standard on which this role had largely been modeled. But this is interesting because now, historically, Augustus has to share the stage. And the person that he is going to share the stage with is the individual whom we are discussing today, the one that history knows as Emperor Trajan. And coming from apparently a 4th century source writing about Trajan and the first century of emperors. There is a very interesting quote that apparently was used often when it came to those who were on the stage and by the Roman people. And the saying goes, quote, be more fortunate than Augustus and better than Trajan. <laughs> well, that is really quite a comparison, is it not? Hmm. That is rather, rather good comparison indeed. Yeah. And so the question now is why? And on top of that, there's the other aspect of this. So in our previous episode, I covered the Domitian despotism. And, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, he very much fit the model of despotism that we understand uh, in terms of political convention, even to this day. But in the case of Domitian, obviously, he was utilizing the powers of the Principate to basically conduct and consolidate personal power where all decisions and all aspects of Roman life were influenced and decided by a single individual and whatever their agenda was. Yet Trajan, unlike Domitian, is by no means loathed. He is one of the paragons of how an emperor should act. And so the big question here for us now, Patrick, boils down to the idea of, while Trajan is not the immediate successor to Domitian, that was Nerva, but he only ruled for a little over a year, he is the effective successor of Domitian. And so how is it that Trajan, who is celebrated, yet possesses all of the same powers that Domitian did, that the outcomes were so radically different. And this is very important in understanding Rome and really a very appropriate companion piece to the segment we did for Domitian in our previous episode. And for him, it is an interesting beginning because Trajan, I believe in 53 AD, was born 
in a Roman settlement called Italicia, which was in fact located in Hispania, the Iberian Peninsula. What's important about this is that it's not Rome. It's not the Italian peninsula. Trajan is the first emperor who assumes the principate that is not born or raised in Rome or Italy. <laughs> and this is a really big deal because through the conventions, or rather the Roman political conventions of the time, that hadn't happened. And in some ways, there are some who even view it as an evolution of the role in towards a meritocratic streak, at least as far as the Romans would see it. Trajan was born a Roman citizen. Uh, most notably, his father held a, a number of positions. I believe he held a consul post at one time, and he was governor of several provinces, but most notably that of Roman Syria. He also was involved in fighting the Jewish war that we covered so extensively. So Trajan is highborn, but he's not from the, the Roman cultural and political epicenter. And he follows his father to Syria and ends up joining the military at a young age. So he's taking one of those paths that is not at all uncommon for the emperors that preceded him, as well as the emperors who would follow. It was one of those those truly set paths that you could take in order to realize some sort of, of greater goal, as you can imagine. But for the most part, not a heck of a lot is known about his early life. And in some ways, that is not entirely unexpected, because at least for the Romans' part, and certainly the few that are writing histories on this, and that's something we'll get to later, is a kind of an odd dearth of sources that we haven't experienced so far in this subject. For the most part, a lot of what is known from him starts coming when he's already well into his professional life. Really where his career starts picking up is actually under the rule of the loath Domitian, and that's something that's quite politically inconvenient, as you might imagine. Specifically, he was in a situation where Saturninus, who was a Roman general, led an uprising of legions, I believe it was either on the Rhine or the Danube, and it was against Domitian. And Trajan went and decided to back Domitian to put down the, the legion and Saturninus's uprising. However, it ended up getting put down before Trajan was able to get on the scene. However, the loyalty and support by Trajan for Domitian was not overlooked by Domitian. As we covered last time, for Domitian, the highest virtue, of course, was loyalty, and not just any loyalty, but loyalty to him, without a doubt. And so this ultimately led, shortly there, later down the line, to his receiving command of all forces that were on the Rhine. In fact, he may have even been governor of Germania Superior. But when Domitian is assassinated, and in the previous episode I mentioned that it was by his Praetorian Guard, it was not explicitly by his Praetorian Guard. It was suspected that a conspiracy involved his Praetorian Guard, but as I understand it, he was in fact murdered by one of his closest servants. Hmm. And so when this goes down, the Senate 
very easily and in consensus appoints Nerva, who at this point is a very, very old man. He's in his 60s. And when he takes over, there's the obvious bias against his age because living into your 60s in that era is pretty old. You know, 2,000 years ago, six decades is quite an accomplishment. Mm. And in this case, his rule is largely benign, but his biggest issue is the fact that he doesn't really have the support of the military. And for the most part, the military itself, sans the Praetorian Guard, was actually rather fond of Domitian because Domitian, for the most part, took care of them. That was always one of the requisites of any successful emperor, at least in terms of maintaining power, which is keeping the military on side. And so when Nerva comes about, he doesn't have that same relationship with the military. And so he only rules for a little over a year. And in that time, he's in, clearly in poor health. And the military, and in this case, most certainly through the Praetorian Guard, there starts getting put pressure on Nerva as far as naming a successor. In addition to the fact that the military was very upset that after Domitian was murdered, Nerva refused to bring those who actually committed the murder to justice and hand them over. And so what the Praetorian Guard did in this case was go and surround Nerva's home and put him under house arrest. This is something that is largely quite interesting because in doing so, they did manage to get those who murdered him to justice and be executed. But the ringleader for the Praetorian Guard in this act was a man by the name of Casperius Aelianus. Even though he managed to survive Nerva, and then, of course, with the pressure by the military, Nerva ends up naming Trajan his successor. And the way he does that, as many times they do, Nerva names, uh, he basically adopts Trajan as his son, on top of the fact that he had no children of his own to name. And so when Nerva dies, Trajan takes over. And Hadrian, which is the is actually Trajan's nephew and a really effective stepson because for the most part he raised him from a pretty young age. He was sent by the Senate to go and give the news to Trajan. And when he gets there, Trajan does not immediately return to Rome. He kind of does a brief tour of the legions that are on the frontier, whether it be the Rhine or the Danube. There's a number of reasons why this is believed to have happened as opposed to, you know, basically storming back to Rome and taking the post. If you're taking a particularly cynical and realpolitik look at things, you have to imagine it was probably Trajan making sure that he had the military on side and that there was no dissenters before he went back. But eventually he did. And this starts a very unique element of Trajan's rule, which is that in many ways... He very much cultivated this concept of the people's princeps, as you were, an emperor who was one of the Roman people as opposed to above and ruling the Roman people. So he gets back to Rome, and is so often the case with any sort of returning hero or a new leader, you can very clearly see in your mind's eye the idea of him coming in on, on steed or being atop like a grand chariot with people lining the streets and him basically doing his his Queen Elizabeth wave as you know <laughs> one of these as it were. 
but he doesn't. He actually enters Rome on foot. I think you could imagine that this is something that's a pretty big deal. If you're a Roman that's in Rome and you're seeing this and you're seeing your new leader literally on foot walking the same streets you are, you have to imagine they're blown away by this, right? It's, it's certainly refreshing compared to the previous uh, emperors and princeps we've talked about so far. No, he really does seem like a man of the people. Yeah, and, and he definitely looks to cultivate that. And hmm. it's hard to know if it's genuine, but you kind of have to imagine it is because you don't really hear any other accounts of that not being the case. And so there's even, going back and, and the few histories that recount this sort of thing, it talks about common Romans coming up and like physically embracing him. That's incredible. I mean, these most of these Roman emperors end up getting proclaimed a god after their death. And yet now, if you're a common Roman, you can reach out and touch him. Imagine that. Imagine being able to do that for like, uh, you know, some, some great world leader today it would never happen. It, it would not happen at all. And what I'm finding so staggering about this is even though this is like pretty much 2000 years ago, these sorts of political tactics haven't changed. You still get political leaders to this day, but like whether pretending or genuinely being one of the people, but being a man of the people or woman of the people is just, it's a classic political tactic that is still going strong today. And it was all the way back then. I just find that absolutely staggering. Isn't it amazing? It's just, it. it's amazing how there are some things, there's, a, there's this great, quote by Mark Twain. So naturally, we always hear the, the, the quote, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Mm. It's a very good quote. But the other quote that I like that very much complements it, that I think is very applicable here, is that in his case, he said, history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. <laughs> that's very good. It, it, oh, that's, that's really that's, good. That's Mark Twain for you. Yeah. And so it, the one thing I could compare it to that I thought of is he was pulling a Jimmy Carter. For those who are not familiar in this case with what I mean, when Jimmy Carter was defeated Gerald Ford in the 1976 presidential election, he also did this on the concept of being one of the people, you know, a man who was grew up and was a peanut farmer and was also a commander of a nuclear submarine in the U.S. Navy. But he really broke from convention, and he very much built up this idea of being a man of the people when he was running. And on his inauguration day in the traditional parade that we, we now have, he leads the procession that begins. And usually that's done with the president-elect, then president shortly after taking the inauguration oath. They would do it in the back of an open-seated vehicle and wave to the people. Jimmy Carter didn't do this. Jimmy Carter instead decided to do it on foot. And in addition to that, he was also seen later that day actually physically helping to move his belongings into the White House. <laughs> and that's, a, that's very interesting, especially when you then compare it to his immediate successor. So Jimmy Carter obviously lost the presidential election of 1980 to Ronald Reagan, who then did the exact opposite of that. He he rode the whole way, a lot of uh, helicopter rides between the White House and Camp <laughs> David, all of that, to really exercise the, the various accoutrements and aesthetics of power, which also lead to a, a certain image in terms of power. And 
in the case of Trajan and any great leader, and in the case in the case of Jimmy Carter, he went too far one way, and naturally Reagan balanced it out by going at the other. So you have to balance it out. If you if you show yourself to be too common, you can lose some of the power that's inherent to your post and and have an inability to influence people and push your agenda. So there's always that balance, and we'll talk more about how Trajan balanced the two. He arrives, and he very much starts with this, I don't want to call it populist, because that's kind of a loaded term that, that very mm. much evolves over time, but certainly this man of the people thing. And when he gets there, one of the very first things that he does, because it's necessary in a position like that, even though he was not known for having any sort of predilection for political violence, one thing that he made sure to do was get his hands on the Praetorian Guardsman Casperius Aelianus, who basically, though he did not kill Nerva, pulled that stunt where he surrounded the house and forced Nerva under house arrest and basically had him executed because the last thing you can do is assume this new position and have somebody that close to you that you know essentially bitten his former political master. So... In, in some ways, he was getting ordered to his house, but he was not a man who was known for a predilection for political violence, which is extremely interesting. And throughout all of this, he really took on, at least in terms of his domestic policy, he did a great deal to go forward and make any decisions in any building or anything like that with the people clearly in mind. He had an undeniable understanding of the needs of the common Romans in a way that a good deal of his predecessors did not nearly pay enough attention to. And so naturally, with Trajan coming onto the scene and having this common appeal, and then you start seeing him implementing these very practical and very useful undertakings, it's it's very, very powerful. Indeed, here are some of the things that he did in order to really undertake it. These are just a number of projects that came out under him. One of the things he did was he drained the Pontine marshes that were south of Rome, which were former wetlands that he ultimately ended up building roads there. This is before environmentalism was a thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. of course. He was he definitely took on a strong initiative for building and maintaining new roads throughout the Italian peninsula. He constructed the harbor of Ostia, which is at the time a main port for Rome on the Tyrrhenian Sea. And it's it's really a very considerably helpful thing economically for most people to have that sort of thing because the Romans were in addition to being land creatures by virtue of where they are, the Mediterranean also had to become complementary sea creatures as well, to put it in a way. He builds a major public baths complex on the site of Nero's supposed golden house. So he's still, they're still taking punches at Nero even, even decades later. He can he constructs a new imperial forum that also included two public libraries. Really, really good stuff. Of course, there's also the Trajan Market, which is there as well. And he goes and undertakes a considerable initiative to collect damaged coins and reissue them. 
it looks good. And there was also some devaluation of currency in there as well. I don't know if he specifically put his image on there, but I, I am pretty certain that he did influence his reign in some way on the coin because like we were talking a few episodes ago, propaganda mm. in your pocket. You mm. can't miss an opportunity, right? No, no, definitely not. Of course, he also was really, really big in the importance of bread and circuses, the games and festivals. I believe when he had his victory over Dacia, I could be wrong, he initiated 120 consecutive days of games, which is just, that's, that's four months, <laughs> four straight months. It is a ton of games. And it, it, it really kind of speaks for itself in that way. And he also, upon assuming Prince slash Emperor, undertook direct monetary payments to the Roman peoples themselves. So, yeah, in a way, maybe he's a little buying them out a little bit there. Mm. But it was, it, it, it was clearly laying the foundation of what he wanted to do and certainly the image he wanted to create and very clearly was somebody who had an understanding that there was a responsibility for him to the people he ruled to actually improve their lives. And that goes a very, very long way. Now, as far as all of this is concerned, this is his public domestic initiatives. But of course, in the case of Trajan, he was also a military man. And one of the most notable things about his rule, it was under Trajan that the Roman Empire reached its largest physical size. It was the apex of their territorial claims mm. during his rule. And when you go and you look into it, and the way I did this was by just using online a calculator to actually get the the distance here. The distance, now granted, the claims for Rome were a little larger than they were by the time of Hadrian's Wall, so mm. they kind of came back a little bit. But use, using Hadrian's Wall, for the most part, uh, Brampton. Brampton, as a straight line to Baghdad, because he got all the way to Mesopotamia under this after his victory over the Parthians, it's a distance of 2,683 miles between those two points. Those two points that are kitty corner opposite in the, in the Roman world. But this is something that I think will help for some of our listeners to get an, an even greater visualization. I use the same service to do this one. I also compared the distance as a straight line from New York City to San Diego, California, and it's only 2,414 miles. And as a straight line, and if you're driving, it's uh, 2,760. That literally, in terms of the straight line, going from my home here in a New York City out to San Diego, California, is 200 miles shorter <laughs> than the distance between Brampton and Baghdad. Think about that for a moment. How incredible is that for 2,000 years ago? It's, it's quite staggering. Like, 
Yeah, there's no really word for it, especially for that far back in time. And as we've talked about in the past, Rome's size would eventually be its downfall, I guess, in some ways, in, in some ways more than others. But it's very interesting to see it peak in size. And something I, I, I'll just ask you quickly here, while it wouldn't get any bigger, would it sort of gain new areas, but in turn lose areas or everything or was everything Rome would ever own and had ever owned there right then? Or would there be new places despite the fact they would also lose some places? So we get to this a little bit later in terms of the conquests that are mm. undertaken mm. by Trajan. And no, this is this is as big as it gets. They, they've mm. ultimately decided that they're not going to go and seriously advance north of the Danube. They won't go further east of the Rhine. Mm. Hadrian's mm. Wall is where it is. There's not a great deal of change in the North African provinces, mm. Saranaica or you go further west than that to places like Morocco or Egypt. This is all that it's going to encompass effectively. And as far as what Trajan managed to accomplish in his defeat of Parthia was the reality that they couldn't hold on to it. As we will talk about in my segment in a moment. Yeah, absolutely. Because 2,000 years ago, lines of communication and supply and political control, it's almost impossible under those circumstances to enjoy any sort of centralized political or military mm. control in that place and time. It's not until extremely recently that we've had the technology and an interconnected infrastructure that would truly allow for such an arrangement to happen from a centralized point like Rome to places as distant as the border of modern-day Scotland and England mm. or basically modern-day Iraq. So, and let's make a distinction here, Patrick, and we'll just, because I, I think it's a pretty good one, which is that there's a difference between seizing and taking a land and conquering it. Mm. And the way I see it in conquering is not only taking a territory, but it's also the means of pacifying it, successfully administrating it, and having the people who effectively have been conquered to in some way buy in to this idea that they are now under the rule of a distant foreign power. And that's something that they could never do that far east in the case of the Romans. So yeah, it encompasses mm. everything that they, they will. And from here, it's a very slow process, but it'll begin to shrink. And, and the Parthian conquest portion will mm. end up shrinking pretty quickly after, after it's conquered. So yeah, he, he went too far. He, and he was also really too old at that point to really keep going and do what needs to be done because he went out and did all of that himself. We'll come back to that in a moment, mm. because one of the biggest things that Trajan ever accomplished in terms of his foreign policy and, and dealing with others is actually occurs in Dacia, which is roughly what we consider to be today modern Romania. And certainly the name Romania is not a coincidence. Have you covered this in Name Explain? I have. It's one of the uh, more successful videos, funnily enough. Um, why isn't it's, it's more focused on Italy? Why isn't Italy named Romania after the Romans? Um, yes, so give us for... a little insight into that one because it's relevant here. Yeah. So um, it, it, the, the name Italy. God, I wrote this video about three years ago now. The name Italy oh, unto goodness. itself. It comes from a tribe more on the uh, 
heel slash toes of the Italian peninsula, the Italas, I think they're called something like that. However, as Romans did settle in what modern day Dacia slash Romania, that's why that country has that name Romania. I mean, and also, of course, the interesting thing about modern day Romania is that they speak a Romance language all the way over in Eastern Europe. There's just like this Romance speaking people. It's a really fascinating country and one I want to visit for sure. Especially just being an aberration, essentially being surrounded by a sea of effectively Slavic languages. Mm, mm. It, it's really fascinating. Yeah, all this Slavic, like, you presume it would be another Slavic like sort of language, but nope, just another Romance speaker all the way over there in the east of Europe. It, it, it's really fascinating. So yeah, Dacia. And Dacia is kind of a, a longer story for the Romans because it goes back to Domitian. And in this case, there was the original conflict basically f- uh, flared up in 85-86 when the Dacian king Durus uh, successfully surprised invaded the Roman settlement of Moesia, which is located around the Romanian Black Sea coast, and they basically sacked the thing. And the Romans, when they decided to counterattack again, and Moesia was uh, sacked again. This was the first battle of Tepai in 88 AD, and uh, Roman general Cornelius Fuscus crossed the Danube natural border in a retaliatory invasion against Dacia, which actually entirely failed. And I could be wrong, and I, I believe they actually lost their legion's standards in, in this fighting, which, like all the way back in the humiliating loss in the Totenberg Force, which I believe was in 9 AD, was a grave dishonor. This is a, a military tradition and convention that lasted even into the days of the Napoleonic armies, if you mm. can believe that, my goodness. So given the events occupying Roman forces elsewhere in the empire, Domitian was not truly able at the time to assemble an adequate invasion force to really handle what was happening in Dacia at the time, which led to there being a truce signed by Domitian and King Duras. It made Duras and Dacia itself a client kingdom of Rome. And also on top of that, I think what we would also call a buffer state from various other Mm. powers beyond that uh, Rome was certainly keen to have some physical distance from, without a doubt. And it also led to large financial support from Rome in compensation for the fact that they lost, but they still got the client king. So for the most part, it was a net win for, for Dacia. And basically, they ended up using the money they received from Rome to further fortify Dacia from mostly any potential future Roman aggression. So they, they, were, they were taking the, the bounty from the peace pipe and doing what was possible to basically protect their gains. Under Trajan, Dacia remained a threat for crossing the Danube to attack Moesia again. So in 101 AD, Trajan preemptively invaded Dacia with much greater success. He had, well, first off, one thing that's undeniable about Trajan is that though he did not have a super distinguished military career, there weren't any tremendous victories that happened, he was still a, a very respected military figure and a very capable one to be sure, and namely under Domitian. And 
this preemptive invasion resulted in, I believe it was then Decebalus, seeking peace terms again, which succeeded. So we go from there, and this time obviously was much more successful, and this now Decebalus sought peace terms that were far more favorable to Rome, which made it made him officially a client king and further cemented Dacia's position as a buffer state. Though Dacia was extremely valuable to Rome, beyond serving as just a client kingdom or buffer state, it has extremely bountiful gold mines. <laughs> Can we edit in um, Spandau Valley just there? Dum, dum, gold. <laughs> Hell to the yes. Anyway, so they had very, very bountiful gold mines. So because of this, these bountiful gold mines, this interconnects with the very aggressive building policies that Trajan was undertaking in Rome to build the kind of things that he ultimately built. And I mentioned this briefly in our prior episode. There's something of a scholarly debate over the state of Roman finances under Domitian. More contemporary sources at the time seem to suggest that there was a great deal of profligate spending on the part of Domitian because Domitian also built a lot. But mm. even though it certainly had the effect of being useful to the public, he was basically doing it for his own aggrandizement, doing things like the plaque, dedicating it to himself, even though he had just restored the building, he hadn't built it completely. Which is, a, which is another example of how Trajan was so different from Domitian. When he would mm. restore a building, he made sure to, to say that who was the original folks who built it. Mm. And, and, and I kid you not, this is actually on there. And then he, the only credit he gives to himself was that in restoring this building or facility, that he made it adequate for the Roman people. <laughs> so you can see the difference in there. So yeah, there, there's this debate now, with modern scholars who seem to believe that the deficits of Roman spending and barren coffers may not have been the case and was simply detractors of Domitian afterwards just railing on him for one other thing, because Domitian by the end here was a non-person. He just, just like Caligula, they were doing everything to write about. The only difference was he ruled a lot longer and had far greater impact to be sure. And because mm. he was such a political hot-button issue, obviously Trajan was, even though he did end up having a great deal of career success due to Domitian and Domitian's favor, he was never keen to publicize any aspect of that. So in order to do the things Trajan wanted to do, he needed the money to do it. And so ultimately, taking out Dacia as, a, as an independent state yet still a client kingdom that was loyal to Rome, he took it out. Mm. He took it out. And even though originally when he had his first preemptive invasion against Dacia, there's no reason to believe that at that point he wanted to incorporate them and make them a formal province. But at this point, he certainly does because, well, let's, let's face it, Patrick, the money's got to come from somewhere. Yeah. And boy, that one paid major dividends and was celebrated extremely, mm. extremely, like I said, the, the 120 games. Mm. And that, that's something I was actually going to ask you about all of this, like all this stuff that Trajan uh, did sounded remarkable. Where was he getting the money to do it from? And you've just answered my question there. 
Yeah, a lot of it, a lot of what he was looking to do ultimately came from that, and which is, you know, certainly mm-hmm. important to know and important to keep in mind. So he manages to pull this off. It's widely celebrated. He has the means to undertake this. And on top of that, there's also the biggest and most memorable aspect of what he sought out to do, which actually had to do with Parthia. And the way he did it was somewhat along a a line of outwardly incongruous events that undoubtedly were very much deliberate in his mind. He went out to Roman Armenia, which at that time would have been the easternmost portion of ancient Anatolia, so basically modern-day Turkey, and mm-hmm. where largely Armenia sits to this day, making sure that there was a satisfactory Roman client king on the throne when the previous one had been unseated and without the consent of Rome and a new one put in his place. So when Trajan went out there to correct the situation, it was also an opportunity for him to be on the scene when he decides that he wants to finally take on the Parthians in force. And one of always the biggest issues with the whole Parthian concept is that, one, they were very far away. You know, they... They were on the borders of the easternmost portions of the empire out in the modern Middle East. And they were not nearly the threat to Rome in terms of their actual military power that they had been prior. But basically, he takes the opportunity to amass his forces and personally oversee the conquest of Parthia, which he succeeds at. He actually defeats the Parthians in full. But at this point, he's a much older man. He's Mm -hmm. nearing the end of his life. And even though he succeeds in taking out the Parthians, he never lives to see the part where you have to subdue and basically assimilate the Parthian people into the Roman Empire. And when you're looking east and you're a Roman emperor or a Roman general and you're moving east— Who is the individual that, at that point in time, they're always looking to as the the, the true paragon of, of greatest conquest? Who is the gold standard in the ancient world for them in terms of conquest? I imagine that would be uh, Alexander the Great. Yeah, it's definitely Mm. Alexander the Great. And so when this conquest is complete, apparently... He decided to take a little ride down to the coast of the Persian Gulf and look out into it, out towards India, just as Alexander the Great (laughs) had done, because Alexander the Great got all the way to, effectively, the Indian subcontinent. In reality, I think, if I understand correctly, we're talking more like modern-day southeastern Afghanistan, maybe northern Pakistan Mm. from a modern perspective. But that's as far as he went. And apparently, according to legend, he said to himself, if only I were a younger man, I would go all the way to India. And on his way back to Rome after the conquest was complete, he never ended up 
making it. I believe mm-hmm. it may have actually been on the sea voyage. I'm not 100% sure that he died from natural causes from a stroke. And by the time he did make it back to Rome, it was after he had been cremated. And so with his death at the end of his life, the Roman Empire was at its territorial apex, but it certainly was not something that he could maintain. But there are a number of reasons why he went down as such a successful emperor. So something I'm interested in knowing about Trajan is how did he mend things between himself, the uh, the office of emperor, and the political powers of Rome after what Domitian had done in the empire? So this is a good question, because not only does his rule affect the people of Rome, Domitian's rule in particular had an extremely detrimental effect on the Senate. So when we're talking about the role of emperor, effectively you're vesting all major executive powers for all intents and purposes in the hands of one individual. And for the most part, prior to Domitian, at the very least, there was still the political facade of republicanism that included the Senate. So when Trajan was chosen, and the Senate in many ways was every bit as coerced in this decision by the military as Derva was to adopt Trajan, it just so happened to be a good choice. In this case, Domitian entirely dismissed the role of the Senate. He was taking all his decisions alone. He didn't trust the Senate. He didn't like them. He would execute some of them for just the smallest slight in addition to publicly humiliate them. And they were completely sidelined. And insofar as folks in, in, in that walk of Roman society could be a victim of anything, they most certainly were the targets that Domitian uh, seemed to take the greatest pleasure in frustrating. And so when Trajan comes about, they are at the very least ambivalent of what is to follow. But Trajan, for all intents and purposes, does an extremely fine job of reincorporating the Senate into decision-making and the effective political structure. Now, let's be clear about this. If Trajan wanted to simply take decisions on his own, he most certainly could do that. And basically what he did was, at the very least, he would always consult with the Senate. Even if he felt very strongly that he was going to do what he was going to do, he made them part of the process, at the very least in terms of political optics, which is interesting because at this point, the the position of emperor, more or less, or princeps, has existed so long, there's nobody really alive or alive in power that has living memory of how the republic actually functioned. And so there's this kind of weird thing where, for the Senate, they seem less interested in the substance of having political power themselves and far more interested in the aesthetics of political power insofar as they themselves are concerned. 
which I think is awfully interesting. And this isn't just a political thing. It also has to do with his actual personal relationship outside of the role of emperor, which is to say that in this case, I believe it is Cassius Dio who is largely writing this at the very least decades later, maybe even as, as much as a century, where he talks about how in the case of Trajan, he had a good sense of humor that was not particularly wicked, and he seemed to be able to appreciate good jokes at his expense, things like that. He had the ability to socialize with senators and those of that true patrician senatorial class. Like, he would go hunting, you know. He would have no issue drinking and, and festivals and, and feasts and all of these things where he was able to put down and rather put aside his role as emperor and effectively be one of the guys, if I were to describe it as anything, hmm. in a way that you have to imagine, well, in addition to the fact that it was the polar opposite of how Domitian did things. You know, let, let's not forget the concept of Domitian dinner parties here, right? Mm, yeah. But he, he could relate with them on a social level. They, they, there could be friendships. They could be, you know, one of the guys. They could go out and do things, and they're not worried about slipping up and saying something and him taking some sort of slight. So, and, and this is something we keep coming back to with Trajan. He's such a man of the people, a working man, one of the guys. There's so many ways you could put that. I mean, like, as you said, you don't want to use the term populist. That's a very loaded term. It's a very modern term that we use. Even like the term I'm coming sort of to is like left wing. Like it's a, but that's once again is a loaded term. One that really doesn't apply to Rome, I guess. Well, if we're, if we're looking, if we're looking to settle just like on, uh, on a good term because what's hmm. left wing and right wing changes yeah many sometimes yeah, yeah. many times during a century i think the word we're looking for, i think the word we're looking for is common touch common touch that's what I, yeah that's what i was about and what i'm curious to know do any other emperors come close to this in the future or even go beyond this because i've never heard of anything i've never heard of an emperor you know when you think roman emperor sitting around having a pint with the lads isn't something that comes to mind no, no, it certainly isn't. Well, see, the other part that I would actually mention here that's interesting to this fact is whether we know what the Senate and we have an idea of of the the common touch that Trajan has, there are even reports of him actually going into the homes of lower class Romans and enjoying at their invitation he's not just kicking in the door and saying feed me yeah no enjoying the hospitality of lower classes of romans in their own home getting on with them just on on a human level and apparently even doing so without any guards wow it's just unheard of like even compared to like modern even like modernly they said it's gonna be so compared to modern politics and it's just that's sort of unheard of back then and even today. It's incredible to hear this. And as you mentioned, under Trajan's rule, Rome expanded to its, its its biggest size, which we know today 
has not been the best of things because that did somewhat lead to Rome's downfall. But Paul, I'm curious to know: are there any uh, contemporary uh, contemporary articles, contemporary pieces of information from the time of Trajan about this? Were, were the Roman people happy that Rome had gotten so big, or were people upset? Did they have? Did they know that this could lead to its downfall at the time, or were they just celebrating? Look how big our land is. Before I before I answer that question, I need to finish actually answering the question you asked before that which <laughs> sorry, is are sorry. there any other romans like any other roman empire emperors that that follow him that that mm. we can compare that to honestly i'm not sure but it it is it is important to note that trajan is considered one of the so-called five good emperors mm. and to answer just to put that in context i don't know that that was a term that the romans actually used i think that might be a term that ended up getting adopted far later i don't know if there was a following emperor who had that same kind of common touch possibly hadrian did i don't know to be honest with you but i can definitely tell you this that the one thing that he does have in common when it comes to the other so-called five good emperors is that for all intents and purposes, and we can't really see any accounts that would suggest otherwise, all of them seem to have a common priority, which was that good, efficient administration where the well-being and needs of the Roman people were their primary objective to serve as opposed to themselves is something that Trajan most certainly possessed. And one and the others being incorporating the other political mechanisms of Rome as well. Those are the commonalities. As far as actually being somebody that appears like a man of the people, the one thing that you can say that is significant to that end is the idea that they are now going within a Roman view, a more meritocratic decision-making in terms of those who lead us, as opposed to simply who is your biological offspring, is a big deal. And that's something that, to one degree or another, becomes a more accepted convention for Romans at the time. So in that way, Trajan is very influential. And while meritocratic is is still quite limited in terms of those they would seriously consider to give the job, it certainly is far wider than where they had been. And I think we've pretty much figured out at this point that the old model, while certainly there were some outstanding examples, there seemed to be far more that followed the Caligula, Nero, Mm -hmm. Domitian route. But to your next question... You're asking if there's any contemporary sources about how the Roman people felt about the expanding size of the empire mm. and as well as what Trajan was actually doing. Mm. Yes. Forgive me if that's a dumb question. No, it's not a dumb question. So this is actually a really important question when it comes to sources. So up to this point, for the most part, we've really benefited from having the writings of people like Tacitus mm. or or the far more salacious Suetonius, who mm. in the ancient world sometimes feel like he was only a few degrees removed from the ancient Roman National Enquirer. Mm. 
um, <laughs> and others. And so when we come to Trajan, we basically have Cassius Dio. He was writing decades after the fact. I don't believe he was even alive for um, any of the realm of Trajan. I could be wrong. but And then, of course, you have the writings of Pliny the Younger, who was the nephew of uh, Pliny the Elder. And, Beautiful that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And he wrote a what they call the Panegyric, which is basically a long hagiography that extolled all of the tremendous virtues and all the wonderful things that Trajan is and has done and will do, and basically painting him to be all things to all Romans. And obviously, no human being can be all things to all people. That, that, that certainly does not seem to be the case. But when you compare it to what we're seeing from Cassius Dio, we do seem to have the idea that the Roman people were both excited when Trajan assumed the role and seemed generally content with how he was running things. He ruled for 19 years and died of natural causes. That is the sign of, at the very least, longevity that's extremely uncommon among his predecessors. And the fact that there, for the most part, was a good deal of contentment within the borders. We still had our foreign wars. This was Rome, after all. But for the most part, they, they seemed to view him as a, a very balanced individual and ruler, one who seemed to understand and balance the needs of the people against the needs for Rome to expand, and the idea that he is putting the task of the best administration with the uh, best aspirations for his people ahead of his own, in addition to the fact that he also was not sadistic. He was not one for political violence. He, he knew that there were some people that you would have to deal with, but he chose really not to do that. He was a man, not simply with a good sense of humor, but of good humor, to be sure, and someone who did not allow slights to truly affect his judgment or, or see it as a capital offense. He, he was somebody that you felt and that history would seem to consistently portray that he is somebody whom, in reality, most anybody of any standing in the empire reasonably could either do business with or could have faith that he is acting in their best interest. And in terms of foreign conquest, you know, the Roman people were definitely not stupid. You know, they, they knew that their despite all the pride and everything that comes with the glory of Rome, that it's a, a delicate process, that eternal expansion, infinite expansion, is simply not possible. It's not possible today. It certainly wasn't possible then. And while I cannot definitively tell you what the general consensus of what the Roman people thought about expansion of the empire, they certainly, at the very least, if they're viewing it through their confidence and general support 
and liking of Trajan, you have to imagine at the very least they didn't oppose it. No. And and that whatever came from those foreign conquests, especially when you're talking about Dacia, that under Trajan, it certainly contributed to a a better life for Rome, for the Roman people, and on the streets of Rome and the wider empire. But I will say this, because we don't enjoy the sources like Tacitus and, and Suetonius, interestingly enough, outside of Pliny the Younger and, and Cassius Dio, this is also, for Trajan, one of the times where, in terms of where modern scholarship is, that we've learned more of substance, apparently, from archaeological evidence mm. than we have necessarily from from histories that certainly uh, either being written a few decades later or, or contemporaneous. And unfortunately, outside of Pliny the Younger's panegyric, which you can only take so far because it's hagiography material, from what I understand, it's mostly based off of archaeological evidence, which unfortunately we don't have enough time to get into really. No. But it's interesting to note that that's, that's largely where we are at this point. It's damn interesting. Thank you so much, Paul, for uh, sharing all uh, this information about Trajan. He seems like a really good egg, simply put. I would say that through the eyes of Romans and Romans of the time, they in all likelihood would have viewed him and agreed with the idea of him truly being a good emperor. And with that, we will hand it off to Anna Domini, in our next segment. But before we do, if you love AD history and you want to help out the show, be sure to leave us a glowing five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a lovely thumbs up or subscription on YouTube, as well as being sure to hit the bell icon to get notifications every time we publish a new episode or clip of AD history. But with that, here is Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History PC and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. Now back to Paul and Patrick. Bang up job is always AD. Now, Patrick, we're going back and we're visiting a Central Asian power that we covered a few episodes back, one that doesn't get nearly enough popular attention in regards to the popular historic memory of that portion of ancient history. But in this case, we're changing that just a little bit as we head back to the incredibly interesting and not nearly covered enough Kushan Empire. Yes, Paul, you are completely right. We are looking once again at the Kushan Empire. And something really exciting happens with the Kushan Empire around this time. And as we talked about, this is somewhat of a season finale it only makes sense that this should end how any good season finale ends. And that's with a good tease of things to come. And while some of the dates are debated, it seems that in the latter years of the first century, 
two empires we've looked into over the last hundred years finally start to interact with one another, in turn sowing the seeds of this highly connected world we have today. And of course, that's the Roman Empire and the Kushan Empire. So like I said, it's just exciting to see these two finally meet. It reminds me of when uh, Daenerys and Jon Snow finally meet in the latter half of Game of Thrones. That's just, like I said, kind of that sort of season finale. It just It got me excited, really. But before we get into that, I just want to have a bit of a recap. How did the Kushan Empire form? Because they are believed to have formed around 30 AD. So it was quite some time ago we last spoke about them. And just like I said, to have a bit of a recap, they were initially a branch of the Yahuzi people, who were a nomadic group who roamed sort of Central Asia. And they were driven west by the Zhongdu, who were another nomadic tribe of people who were very fierce, and uh, they were even believed to be ancestors of the Huns. So it was these people who pushed the people who become the Kushans further into the west, where they sort of would end up. And they ended up taking over this part of the world that was known as Bactria. And that equates roughly to modern-day Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. And it was here they stopped being nomadic people and founded a homeland and conquered the people who already lived there. And their first true empire was a man by the name of Kujula Kadipis, once again apologies for pronunciation on that. He was able to unite all these people and formally form the Kushan Empire. And that's how it all began and like I said that was just a brief overview. If you want to know more go back and check the previous Kushan Empire episode because we go into more detail about their origins there. But what happened between the founding and all the way up to 90 AD just before where this episode begins? Quite a lot happened actually and this first emperor of Kujula Kathipis actually ruled to about 80 AD. And in this time, he gained a ton more land for the Kushans and ousted other tribes. His conquests are spoken about in the Hon Hashu, which is one of the 24 histories of China. And this is an adapted quote about Kathipis from the Ho Hanshu. And it says, Kathipis attacked and exterminated the four allied princes, then set himself up as king of a kingdom, invaded Parthia and took the Gafu region. He also defeated the whole of the kingdoms of Parthia and Jibin. These invasions are believed to have taken place around 4260 AD. And after his death in around 80 AD, his son Vimataktu took over. And we have some quotes on Vimataktu. He is, um, for, once again, from the Horn Hanshu. Uh, and they say he defeated northwestern India and installed generals to supervise and lead. Then Kushan became extremely rich. So I guess the key takeaway during this time period bef uh, from their founding up to around just before we're going to properly look into them is that in this time the Kushan Empire became stronger, bigger and wealthier. And this all led to Kanishkak coming in to rule and he is considered the greatest Kushan king. And he eventually became emperor, though we do have some conflicting information about him. I've read he was the third ruler of the Kushan Empire and their fourth ruler. Like, I just couldn't figure out for sure one source was saying that, one source was saying that. As you guys know by now, this is a constantly happening issue in this time period. We just aren't sure on the exact times. And once again, we aren't sure exactly when his uh, rule began. The general consensus is that it was either the late first century or the early 2nd century. So we possibly could have talked about this in the next episode, but we're talking about it here. Anyway, King Kanishka really got the ball rolling on the Kushan Empire interacting with Rome. So he did expand um, the Kushan Empire. In fact, he expanded it more than any other previous rulers. But also, 
he got things rolling with talking to Rome. That's a pivotal, pivotal thing. And under his uh, reign, the Kushan Empire grew to cover the southern ends of modern-day Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and even all the way into northern India. And as I'm sure you can see, Paul, there's a map of the Kushan Empire's outreach and it was getting pretty darn big. And so once we're here, we're here, we're here to know that even though they did come into contact with each other, what did the Romans and Kushans actually do with one another? And the primary thing was trade. There wasn't war, luckily, between these two. So trade was profitable for both parties. Uh, this trade was good for the Romans, and it was good for the Cushions too. And Rome bought things like silks and lapis lazuli and animal furs of Central Asian animals from the Cushions. Things they simply weren't able to get themselves because none of their empire or their lands covered these kinds of things. And in exchange, the Cushions received gold and silver coins from Rome. And these were, of course, highly precious like the cushions had never received precious metals in this quantity before and as we talked about initially with the cushions it wasn't only goods they got from the romans they uh, adopted some roman cultures too and we've seen coinage from the cushions depicting roman gods even depicted buddha as well which we'll talk about more in a moment and then through their love of uh, roman coinage the cushion coins became incredibly roman too and there's even evidence of a cushion coin that featured the cushion rule on one side and a Roman emperor on the other side, which is a spot usually held for a deity. So that's just amazing. Imagine a coin with two rulers of two different empires. That's just unheard of. It just shows how close these two empires were, I guess, in all honesty. But so all in all, they seem to get along. But it wasn't just Rome that Kanishka broke ground with as he built up a relationship with the Han dynasty in China. Uh, this really helped cement the image we have of the Kushans today as the sort of a middleman between Rome and China. We talked about this once again when we first uh, covered the Kushans. They, they had this odd culture, as we mentioned, that, that they had coins that depicted Roman gods and people like Buddha as well. Just, 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 just that's how connected they were. It just sounds so unheard of and odd. When you put it that way. And then from their beginning, and just what I find so impressive about this, is from their beginning in around 30 AD, it took just about 70 years for them to become a key player. And I really do hope we'll be hearing more about them as we continue our journey. And of course, eventually, spoiler alert, we'll find out about their eventual demise. But that's quite a long way off for now. But that is just what I wanted to share with you guys, how Rome... And the cushions finally met. I just thought that was an exciting way to end our first season with these two great powers finally meeting. But Paul, if you have any questions for me about the cushions or the Romans, I would love to hear them. So this definitely augurs a great many questions here at this point. And in many ways, this is kind of one of the big questions about the cushion empire, given its position there in Central Asia. It's so important, yet at the same time, we don't seem to have a tremendous amount of scholarship, certainly not by comparison to the Romans or the Han Dynasty. You know, there's no question about that. We've talked about it many times. And now that we are at a point where we're at the end of the first season, and we're really asking ourselves these questions because... This is one that comes up in our research a lot. Now that we have, effectively, the, the Roman Empire at its territorial height, 
and the Han Dynasty is now the Western Han Dynasty, I believe, now that we have dispatched with our old friend Wong Mong. Well, this is a question that is more of an opinion on your part, but it's definitely one we have to ask. And that is, why don't we know as much about the Kushan Empire as we do about powers like Rome or the Han Dynasty? Yes. Yes, after Wang Meng finally came and went, we're back to the Han Dynasty. So I think this is a bigger question that has been somewhat looming over our entire first season, Paul. I think it's something we could probably both talk about. What, why have we, we? The aim of AD history was always to cover the entire world at various stages, and we will in the future. But at this moment of time, we simply don't know as much about the other parts of the world. We only really seem to know concrete evidence about Rome and China. And the other information we know, like we know about the cushions, they're from Chinese and Roman sources. It was just these two empires, the Han Dynasty, other Chinese dynasties at the time, and the Roman Empire, they just had a love of keeping track of what was going on, I guess, for lack of a better term. For some reason, the cushions and other empires that were around at this time, either they weren't developed enough or they just weren't keeping track as their own histories as much as these guys. But it, I have to ask you, Paul, is this an issue you've run into as well when researching this first season? So short answer, Patrick, is yes. I've definitely experienced that. It's very clear that in my experience researching during our first season here, that whether it be Rome or the Han Dynasty, they are indefatigable historians of their own history. And in fact, it's not until this particular segment where we were going through Trajan where we weren't getting the kind of multitude of histories that they were creating for a given set of period that included a certain set of emperors where now a lot of what we're doing is either written a fair amount down the road and hardly anything that would be considered contemporaneous or it's largely, you know, anthropological evidence. It's largely anything that we can take up from the ground and kind of start piecing together. Archaeological evidence, to be sure. So, yeah, I definitely have. It's interesting that we're learning about a power like the cushions through the eyes of those who weren't really cushion at all. And that so much of what we would consider to be really good, hard scholarship that's in some ways more definitive than anything else that we've come across regarding the cushions, most of it for them, the best stuff is archaeological in nature. You know, there's no question about that. So basically, we're at that point now where... Yeah, I've definitely gone through it, and you've gone through it, and we've talked about this a fair amount. It certainly makes covering powers like Rome or the Han Dynasty a great deal easier, but it also puts you in that interesting position where you're learning about the Kushan Empire primarily through the lens of their neighbors, even though they're not a direct neighbor to the Romans, you're getting looks at them from the perspective of outsiders and archaeological evidence. And it's a heck of a way to, to deal with 
any sort of great power, such as the cushions, which they most definitely were, despite their lack of historical attention on the popular level, it's been pretty inescapable so far in my experience, to be sure. But, you know, this brings me to my next question for you, Patrick, and we touched on this in our prior segment, but it's still worth addressing relative to the cushions themselves. And in your view, why didn't the Romans choose to invade cushion territory? You know, we, we talk a lot about how, you know, whether it be in the prior episode, why Rome ultimately eyeballed Ireland but decided not to go there, or just as we were talking about a little bit before, why they couldn't hold their gains inside the Parthian Empire. But in your view, why don't you think the Romans pulled the trigger on this one? Because undoubtedly this is something that you've looked into because it's an interesting question. You know, there's a lot of bravado and chismo when it comes to the Romans, Romans and deciding where they'll invade or will they not invade. And of course, there's always this pride about trying to go as far as Alexander the Great and go all the way to India. But what's your take on this? I looked into this, and the general consensus was we've talked about this. We've talked about this before. Where we're like, why didn't Rome take Ireland? And the general consensus, I believe, was they just realised that they didn't need it, and it would just make things too expansive. And from from what I could see, they could get what they wanted from the cushions through trade, and not have to overtake and kill. They seem to have a pretty good deal. They didn't have. To, yeah, they just seem to be in good terms. The land didn't seem of urgent need to the Romans. It probably would have been more hassled than it was like a lot of Asia. Other people have also asked, why didn't Rome take over India? And it was just the same general consensus. They didn't really need it. It just would have, it wouldn't have really got them much further. No, it, it definitely wouldn't. It would have been a great deal more trouble than it's worth a lot of resources going into that sort of thing. And, you know, as much as the Romans were known for their stoicism and uh, a tremendous pride. In many ways, it fleshes out in their decision-making in many cases where in as much as there was a great deal of pride, there was a great deal of pragmatism. And it isn't only until very, very recently that some kind of centralized control over a landmass as large as what the Romans actually controlled was even possible. I mean, let, let's put this in modern terms. We were talking about this a bit in our prior segment, but have you ever had to fly from London to the Middle East? I've flown from London to Qatar, which is kind of the same ballpark, not exactly, but kind of the same ballpark. Yeah, and that was about six hours. Well, that definitely tells you a great deal that even today with jet power commercial aircraft, it still takes six hours to cross that same essential landmass at its height, kitty corner. I mean, just think about that for a moment. It's absolutely incredible. In fact, when you stop and think about it, just how blown away the folks that inhabited this ancient world, whether it be the Romans, the Parthians, the Kushan, the Hun Chinese, just how blown away they would be by 
even the incredibly commonplace, albeit very recent, technology that we are using without even giving it a thought to record just this podcast. I mean, they would be absolutely blown away by what we are taking for granted and what would be necessary communication-wise to have that kind of control. We'd be gods. (laughs) (laughs) Well, perish the thought, my friend, perish the thought. But yeah, and like we've talked about before, introducing a technology sufficiently advanced in front of a less advanced people to them, as it's been said before, and this is kind of paraphrasing, this would be indistinguishable from magic. And it basically takes magic to exert the kind of control necessary to do this sort of thing from their perspective at the time. It would be it would be our faces on the coin pool. One side would be you, one side would be me. <laughs> well, once again, <laughs> perish the thought. Both your and my mugs on both sides of the same coin. Well, well, at the very least, it would be a very fine collector's items. But yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It would have been extraordinary and, in many respects, entirely necessary to do the kind of thing that we're talking about here, controlling that vast landmass from a centralized place as far as Rome. They only got about as far as Mesopotamia, and that's pretty darn far. And something I wanted to add, is uh, just, just going back to the Kushan Empire and how underrepresented they are, and this is an issue I've done as well, that this, and they're so overshadowed by Rome and China that even when we talk about the Kushan Empire, what we primarily talk about them is, hey, they were between, like, they're known, like, all they're known for, really, or most known for, is for being the middleman between Rome and China. That, like, if you said, what's the Kushan Empire? Oh, it was the empire between Rome and China. I don't want that. I want people to go, what's the Roman Empire? I want people to go, oh, the Roman Empire. That's the one to the west of the Kushan Empire. Does that make sense? No, that makes total sense. I see exactly where you're coming from, and it's a sentiment I very much share. Mm. Yeah. They just sort of just so bless them. Like, I just feel bad. Like, even I've done it myself. I've got I've harped, I've harped on about how they were so like the middlemen between Rome and China, but they need like this need their own image and hopefully one of the things we will do in the AD History Podcast as we go on is give these lesser known stories of history more of a platform. Well, that's certainly a goal that you and I have both shared from the beginning. And it's no small challenge. You know, over time, you know, we've had some people say, oh, well, you know, you focus too much on this. Why not that? And the fact of the matter is a lot of it has to do with availability of information. Our desire is very, very wholesale to give a good deal more detail and attention to those like the Kushan Empire, where in many cases its history does kind of get passed over in the popular historical sense. There are certainly scholars and academics and those out there who do pay attention to it. And, of course, we're also somewhat bound, and it's one of the challenges of this show, from our Western perspective. You know, you can't help where you came from. It's the reality of the thing, and that's something that you and I are always working through. But, yeah, definitely. And as time goes on, and I like to think we've done a pretty good job of it so far in this first season, is getting that kind of attention and... 
uh, greater detail for powers like the Kushan Empire, figures that are not nearly as known. Like someone like Wang Meng, you know, basically there was there was not a whole heck of a lot out there, um, even now after doing what we did. And yeah, I mean, that's one of the, the grand objectives for this entire show. And it's one of the things that really makes this show what it is and and putting that out there and and making it part of one of our grand objectives because not only do they deserve a platform as if we are the grand arbiter of such things, but they're incredibly interesting. And that in and of itself makes it worthwhile, makes the goal something worth aspiring to and to continue improving upon. I mean, that's one of the great reasons that we've done Adia History and why we consider that our lens of true world history insofar as that goes. But, you know, all told, it, it, the Cushion Empire is going to be one of many in that respect down the line. And, you know, I'm all for it. You know, give us the challenge. That is why we are here, without a doubt. But, you know, we're, we're here and we're coming to wrap here on this last episode. And, you know, Patrick, you take it from here. Give us, what are your thoughts having gone through all this exceptional experience so far? Thank you all so much for listening and for tagging along for this. I know... AD history, it's just sort of Babylon, but from my own perspective, AD history is incredibly different to Nave Explain. Obviously, it's about history, one's about language, and one's a YouTube channel, one's a podcast, but the way the information is presented, this is a much more slower pace, in depth discussion, whereas Name Explains a bit more punchy, pow, 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 info, info, info. And when I started this journey with Paul, part of me was like, I'm sure Paul, you had the same feeling, like, are people going to like this? And I was worried because this is so different to what I've been doing. I was like, are people going to enjoy this still? Are people going to be even like disappointed that isn't more like name explained? And just to see the positive reaction, to hear the messages you guys send in, to read the comments has been amazing that you guys are as interested in this concept as me and Paul are. It, it really does mean the world. And I'm constantly amazed every now and then <laughs> behind the scenes sort of fact here, Paul does a lot more of the behind the scenes sort of stuff. And every now and then, Paul report to me about like the viewing figures, the numbers. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I'm just, I'm just so happy to see how much you guys are enjoying this, and it's so rewarding unto itself doing that. And even though we've just finished a hundred years of history, which is a huge amount of time, we've covered highlights of a hundred years of history. You know, a bit by bit, decade by decade. We're only just getting started. We've got about 1,920 more of these to go. So strap in, guys, because we're just getting started. Boy, did you say that, Patrick. Yeah, absolutely strap in, because we are, and we have obviously an incredibly long way to go. But the fact of the matter is, and there's no two ways about it, that this wouldn't be the same without you guys. It wouldn't be a show and this is not a constant refrain. This is not something that is said just to be said, which is that we're taking this journey with you. And it's a long one, but we're happy to do it. We are incredibly excited. There is no greater challenge. It's a, it's a supreme challenge. And 
the fact of the matter is we're not going it alone. We're doing it with you guys. And we have a ton to look forward to. And if you want to help out the show, I mean, there are many ways that you can do it. Of course, one way is naturally leaving a good rating and glowing review for us in places like Apple Podcasts, leaving your thoughts in the comments section on YouTube, or giving us the thumbs up if you like it, and subscribing, hitting that notification bell. You've heard the spiel all along, because that really does help in a way that we cannot emphasize enough to be sure. But more than anything, stay in. You know, spread the word. If you know there's somebody out there that is into history and this is something they dig, tell them to come along because, you know, the boat isn't full. As many of you that can come along, all the better. And we love hearing from you. We love getting your emails, your questions, all of it. It's truly exceptional stuff. And we have a long way to go. And boy, am I looking forward to that. And something else you guys can do to help the channel, uh, help the podcast even. And this might sound a bit old fashioned. And what, what, like, that's, I can't do that on the internet. Tell a friend, just if you know someone who's into history, let them know, hey, like, I, I know a really good history podcast. Word of mouth. Annoyingly, we can't track word of mouth analytically. I'd love a graph of word of mouth. But, yeah, if you know someone who's into history, let them know about the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it may sound old-fashioned, but it's absolutely true. And if you do it, it goes a long way, and you know how much we'll appreciate you doing it because it counts for everything. Exactly. So next time you'll be hearing us, guys, we'll be doing that fun What We Missed episode. And while we're going to have to research some stuff we missed, let us know what you think we missed on these first hundred years usual ways email us uh tweet us anything like that leave a comment in the youtube channel you'll be able to find all the links down there let us know what we miss yes absolutely an episode like that is made even better and a lot more fun when we're hearing from you guys and you're bringing in things that you thought we missed and stuff that we could add and things of that nature and we'll obviously be doing research and we have our own thoughts on the matter to be sure but chime in we want to know but all told, guys, it's been wonderful. Let's rock and roll. Thank you all so much. Thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as ADHistoryPodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching ADHistoryPodcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. On behalf of Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. We will see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.